All right. Well, um, the title of the class is Lost Causes and Worthless Resumes. And I subtitled it, Finding Our Way When Identities Crash. And, and what I was kind of thinking on is kind of is exploring uh, for the next four weeks starting today. Um, and today we'll be in here and the next three weeks in the day school library, which is a better room because nobody cooks in there during the week, whereas this kind of becomes um, ground zero for, for lunch prep during Lent. Uh, it's this idea of loss. And I don't know why, why I've kind of been kind of rummaging around on this idea for a couple of weeks uh, before Gil uh, contacted me about doing some teaching, was the idea of how we cope when the things we've trusted fail us. When in some way in life we come out on the losing end and all the institutions, uh, all of our investments of time and energy and money and resources, uh, our resumes, everything that we've built or everything that we're a part of that we've trusted in doesn't work. And how, we, how do we cope with that? How do we deal with that? What does the scripture say about that? And, and why ultimately it's a good thing when by grace we're given the, the eyes to see, the ears to hear that, that those things have in fact failed and that we have to rely on something else to do, to do and, you know, and crudely to do anything, but more specifically maybe to do whatever it is, you know, whatever task we're out to do or whatever we're trying to accomplish. And, and so the kind of loss that, I, that I'm thinking of is, is something that's obvious, um, something where, where in our own lives we've got a hard break. It, it's not anything gradual. It, it's something that happens, and it's very real, and it's very determined, and it's a point at which we, we can't go back, where within our own lives we, we sort of cross the Rubicon and know that something has permanently changed, and we can't go back to what used to be. And in fact, whatever it was that used to be failed. It collapsed. That we had placed trust in something and had defined ourselves by something that ultimately let us down. And in, in a lot of respects, we can always look at this and say, well, we do this in a million different ways every day. But I do kind of want to look at, a, not, not at the little, you know, the, the, the thousand tiny things, but look at the, the handful of big things that we all go through and deal with in life. And, and I say that very graciously and humbly, being relatively young, um, less young, I realize all the time, um, but, but not having the full view of life um, that a lot of people are privileged to have. Uh, you know, an example of what, what we could talk about that, that everybody can relate to is maybe high school graduation, where you know that something is, you know, at, at 6 o'clock you're one thing, and by 10 o'clock you're something else and you're never going back to what you were. And uh, I teach high school, and, and so I've seen a, my, my share of tears at graduation in the last couple of years. And you realize that that's always for different reasons. I mean, some people are graduating, and, and they're happy that they're graduating, and they cry a little bit because they're going to go off at college, and they're going to make new friends, and that's going to be fine. Other people are crying because they have been the most awesome person for the last 13 years, and all of a sudden that identity is completely stripped away from them. When they take off the gown, um, uh, at, at the end of the night, they take off the graduation gown and they hang it up in the closet. They have been totally you know, stripped, literally, of, of any kind of coolness, any kind of identity that they, that they once had. Um, and that's a significant thing. Uh, and, and so that, that's kind of one example. Uh, another more profound example, probably, that affects lots of people on a broad scale is um, 
and this is something I want to get into pretty, pretty strongly, is the idea of what happens um, maybe when a country loses a war and, and how much identity gets tied up into that. Um, I've thought about that a lot in, in connection with the Civil War uh, lately, where um, you go into a thing, in this case you go into a war, um, not just placing trust in your, your weaponry or your technology, but instead to your fortitude and your courage and a set of ideals that ostensibly you're willing to live and die for and that ostensibly are going to see you through. But in the end, uh, certainly in the case of the, the South and the Civil War, um, and this has happened for, for, for numerous people uh, all throughout history, those things fail. And how do you cope? How does a people, 5 million, 10 million, 15 million people, how do you cope and deal with that when these ideals kind of collapse around you? And, and all of that is, is, is really going to be um, just kind of a window into seeing how that plays out in our own lives. And so uh, if today is a little introductory, that, that's okay, because I'm going to kind of hit these notes again uh, the next three weeks and then try to wrap up in four weeks with a little bit more good news than perhaps I'm going to throw out maybe today or, or in the next two weeks. Um, so that, that's kind of, kind of the angle I want to take. Uh, there are probably two ways in which you could talk about loss that I would only talk about indirectly, maybe not, not in, the, in the forefront. One is obviously when, when individually we deal with things like death and divorce. That's part of it because obviously you can create an identity around another person and then when they, when they pass on or something, it's, it's very difficult to, to reconfigure yourself with their absence. But directly, that's obviously not something I'm qualified to speak on very well. Um, uh, obviously, we've got lots of, of, of clergy and, and counselors who are really good at that. Uh, the second thing is a little bit closer to what I'm getting at, but not directly. And I'm going I'm to split the difference um, on a pretty, in a pretty thin way, but, but I think it's worth doing. I'm not really interested in nostalgia, at least not nostalgia directly. And again, this is admittedly a very, very thin difference. But the difference between kind of that gaping loss that you face when you graduate high school or this, obviously, directly, this is, hasn't happened in America in a sense, never, or not at least in a very long time, when you lose and lose badly uh, in some sort of conflict. The difference with nostalgia is that it's something that just happens gradually over time, and perhaps even nothing really changes. It's just kind of an emotional, psychological component. Gil Cracky's done a really fine job on this at Christmas the last couple of years. And, and you know, with, with, with nostalgia, it could be that, you know, Fourth of July, you go to the same lake house and go swimming in the same lake and jump off the same pier and everybody's there and you eat the same food but somehow between 12 and 18 something changes and you can't put your finger on it but in a sense nothing's changed and so uh, we can kind of get at that directly and maybe you could loop these things all together in concentric circles but directly uh, I'm not really looking at, at that because I'm a little bit more interested in what happens when something in kind of a glaringly obvious almost crude sort of way when something is, is, the rug's kind of pulled out from underneath us and the, the, um, the legs fall off the hinges, so to speak, and, and we're, we're left with, with a lot to, to deal with and how we, how we cope in that regard. So um, in that way, we'll kind of, kind of approach it kind of, kind of distantly. Um, is that clear enough? Any, any questions on, I hope I'm not being vague. I'm vague sometimes, it's, so if, you're not going to hurt my feelings if you tell me I'm vague. Um, just as a note, and I've not gotten into this yet, and admittedly, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it today. Uh, the text is going to be Paul's letter to the Philippians, um, chapter 3, especially where, let's see, the famous passage where he, he lists off all of his accomplishments uh, as, a, um, as a Roman citizen, as a 
um, essentially a Jewish clergyman, and, and he has to admit to, to his, his fellow believers at Philippi that he counts all of those things as loss. And so it's that word that I um, kind of rummaged over. We, we hit on this in our small group probably six weeks ago, and um, the idea kind of, kind of came in at that point. So I'll get to that, um, get to that briefly. Been a couple of examples that um, that I've run across, and Lori and I've run across lately, um, in, in popular culture, uh, that I think hit on this theme. One, uh, if you've seen the show Downton Abbey, that's been very popular um, the last couple of years. I think that's that hits in that direction. If you're not familiar with the show, it's a, it's a British television show that's aired on the, I think on BBC. Um, it's aired on Masterpiece Classic here in the U.S. on PBS. Uh, they've done two seasons so far. The, the second season ended um, a couple of weeks ago. We're kind of in a quandary now on what to do on Sunday nights now if this isn't on. Um, but um, it, it's, it's available on DVD, I think, both seasons. And I think you can stream it on Netflix. So if you're not, not familiar with it, it's, it's really a fantastic show. And it's a, it's a period drama set before, during, and after World War I. Um, it's kind of an upstairs-downstairs drama where you've got the, the, the wealthy landowning um, uh, upper class and the, you know, their, their issues and the, the relationship with their, their servant class below. And... There, to me, anyway, there's, there is a pervasive theme in this TV show about, sh- about shifting times and, and about losing things. I mean, clearly, uh, World War I really marked a very, very hard break with the end of Victorian England into the modern age. And that comes up on the show with several characters, either in terms of lifestyle choices and how they choose to live and who they want to date or marry, um, even things as little as you know, how people dress. Or There's, there's often a comic interplay between the, the main male character, Lord Grantham, and his mother, uh, played by Maggie Smith, where um, you know, she, she's very, very sarcastic and, and even just little bitty things that don't quite match up to her Victorian standards, she kind of raises an eyebrow about. And it's never anything serious, but it's, it's kind of comical. But there, there's a lot of interplay on that show with, um, w- again, with, with these, these kinds of changing conditions. And uh, it's not gradual either. I mean, World War I certainly was a very hard, clear break. And even though technically England comes out on the winning side, old England lost because as, it, as, as the young men came home um, in, in, in very small number, unfortunately, uh, old England was no more, and whatever the new England was, and, and I, I suppose you could argue that's still not been settled, uh, it was completely different. And so um, the sense of purpose for everybody on the show, for all these characters, is, is very real, this kind of grappling with what is my new place in the world, because the place that I grew up expecting to have isn't there anymore. And it's not necessarily because of something I've done, uh, but it, you know, through war, through economic changes, through social changes, all, all of it's gone. And, and so that's something I want to bring back. And admittedly, um, I didn't have a lot of time to kind of dig up video clips, but also kind of just wanted to introduce it today without, without leaning too much on video, which is something I have a tendency to do. But I think that's, that's a really good, that'll, that'd be a really good example. And it's something that culturally is, is pretty popular at the moment but is, um, that's an, it's a really strong example, historically with a, with a strong uh, television program that's highly entertaining that, that kind of demonstrates the way in which these changes have taken place. Kind of piggybacking on that, and, and I don't know how many of you are, are serious rock and roll fans, um, there, there was an album that came out last year that, that worked, that kind of fits in well with, with that show by uh, an English rock artist named PJ Harvey, who was kind of the quintessential angry white female in the 1990s. Um, but is immensely talented, and in fact, this album that she, she did last year called Let England Shake won England the Mercury Prize, which is kind of England's version of the Grammy Award. And uh, it is a 
rather dark meditation on World War One. So it's kind of a concept album um, where she looks at the shift from jolly old England, that's kind of um, Lord of the Rings, Tolkien-esque, beautiful pastoral, idyllic England, and this very traumatic transition from that to whatever we have today. And, and she's, she, she's someone who grew up, in fact, in kind of the English countryside, and so she, she knew that personally. But if, if you've happened across that record, um, and I would encourage you to maybe go home and check it out on, on, on YouTube, um, especially on YouTube, in fact, because, um, and again, this may be something I can try to bring back in, in coming weeks, um, she worked with a famous war photographer to make a series of videos to go along with it that kind of, they elevate the music video art form, such as it is, to something a lot higher than I think what we're used to categorizing it. Um, and there's a really good exploration there of the shift from from point A to point B and, and how how people who had very much taken pride in an old way of doing things, how they coped when the the old way became became obsolete, uh, especially when it was accompanied by a lot of death and destruction. Nancy, hi. Right. For that time period. And I'm sensing it now myself in my work. And I'm working, I work with some older, I have, I have people that I manage who are close to retirement and I have people I manage who are brand new out of college. Right. And the diversity of skills and technology and understanding and then what I feel that I can do in my job and what I'm supposed to be able to do is dramatic. And right. that's a real, it's a challenge that I didn't expect to face ever. Right. I thought, yeah, you know, I could program the VCR for my parents when I was 10, and now here I am nearly 40 going, oh my God, I, I feel way behind. Right. And I'm only mid-career. And right. It's shocking. So I, that just popped to mind. I hadn't even thought about it until you ring and all this stuff. But that's a, that's a struggle I feel. Right. That I feel like there's a loss of my childhood and what I thought I could do and understand throughout my life that's more, been more dramatic in, in my mind lately than right. I never, you know, I never no, I think that I think that is, is something a lot of people are, are dealing with in a very direct way. I mean, you watch the, and not to not to, to be overly political, but you, you listen to the campaign rhetoric, and really on both sides of the aisle, whether you're right or left, especially in, in talking about like, like blue collar jobs and manufacturing and, and factory work and things like that. I mean, there's there's a hard, there's obviously an identity thing at work there where um, where people want. They want one world to exist, and there's this hard question on the other side about people who maybe aren't trying to be heartless, but they're saying, I'm not sure, they're almost, they're almost kind of sheepishly, because you, standing against nostalgia is a hard thing to do, but you can almost see this kind of sheepish Woody Allen figure sitting in the back of the room kind of meekly raising hand and being like, um, how's that going to work? Yeah. And, and I don't know, and, and it, it's not a case of saying, I want to throw that away, but something has, has changed, uh, and, and perhaps gradually, perhaps overnight, Change gradually, and you know, where, where do you go from there? Um, that's that's one thing. And I'm being recorded, so I'll be vague here. That's one thing I noticed with my students a little bit. Uh, you know, there, there's there's always been a kind of a, a core percentage who felt that a, a good high school diploma and a lot of just kind of do-it-yourself skill and know-how would would work for them. And I, I've, I've told a couple very graciously, I can honestly say that may have worked when your parents graduated high school. Maybe it doesn't work anymore. And if it does, you're very fortunate. That's not standard way of life. And, and that's a hard thing to cope with. It's a, it's a very hard thing to cope with. I don't, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy. I'm going to kind of lay my cards on the table here. I'm, I'm not overly sympathetic with the, the Occupy Wall Street crowd. 
except for the one point, especially people who are, who are roughly my age, where there was some shift between about 1998 to today. There really was, and I don't know what that is, and I don't know who to blame for it. If you should blame anybody, I don't, I don't know. Where I, where I am sympathetic is at least there, there, kind of, there is a little bit of trauma there, where you were told one thing, that you, know, you, you were told for a long time, place your cards in this, and it'll be fine. It's a safe bet. There's not a lot of risk. You do this, and we feel overly confident that in 20 years you'll be able to do this other thing. And all of a sudden, somewhere, the whole thing, the, the bottom fell out of that. And uh, while I may not be on board with certain prescriptions for solving that problem, I can I can really sympathize with with the feeling that everything we were told to trust in completely collapsed, uh, even all the way down to. I say this as a high school teacher to your high school teacher. She said, "Oh, go ahead and do this, and it'll be it'll work out great for you." Which you know, I'm dealing with 15, 16, 17 year olds every day, and that makes me incredibly nervous because I, I can tell them what's not working. But I, I, I've, I've told you know, some of my my more advanced students who are really eager about this sort of thing. I've told them, like, "Guys, I can't promise you anything, and and I wish I could. I really wish I could look at you in the eye and say, you know what? If you go to school and you study this, you, you know, absent you doing something really dumb, you're going to be in a good position in 15 years." And, and I can't do that anymore. And, and that's, a, that's a really bitter pill to swallow, especially when that change seems to happen like every five years. I think that's the, the difficult thing because you know, there was a time when, okay, it happened at, in World War I, or it happened during the Depression, or it happened during Vietnam. Well, I mean, you're talking there, you're talking spaces of 20 or 30 years. Now it's four or five years, maybe, sometimes less than that. And I don't, yeah, I don't know how to make that even work. And, and I think that the technology thing, I mean, it, it's easy to kind of fall into a, you know, these, these darn kids kind of attitude. On the other hand, when those darn kids can step in and all of a sudden, you know, change the world on their laptop at 2 o'clock in the morning in their, in their dorm room, then, then, then what do you do? You know, and, and that's, that is difficult because what, what starts out is, you know, what you think is just simply a trend or just some kind of passing fad all of a sudden becomes some sort of permanent thing that changes the way we do things, then, you know, then what? Um, and I think that's, that's kind of a difficult, a difficult thing. Um, I mentioned World War I in, in Europe. Uh, obviously, the, the, the traumatic experience, I think, for, for us as Americans, um, and you could talk about Vietnam to a point, would, would certainly that would be the Civil War, where, um, and this is something that's kind of caught my attention lately, I spent a lot of time studying the war in grad school, um, probably not enough, seeing as how I never finished a PhD, but, but I worked on it for a while. Um, but recently, I, I've kind of found myself kind of going back to this, and it's something that I, that I enjoy, certainly as a hobby, uh, a great deal. And so um, I'm curious about the way in which that kind of loss affected a large group of people on a psychological level and on an emotional level. And you could, I mean, you could chase this rabbit for a really, really long time and see how that how fail, failed cultural institutions and coping with that led to the creation of new cultural institutions and all that sort of thing. Um, and I, maybe, maybe we, can, we can chase that eventually. And as difficult as it is, I, I want to leave the, the, the kind of racial component on the shelf a little bit, um, but, but look at, at, at the, especially the emotional and psychological attitudes that, that, that Southerners possessed in 1861, and then where they're sitting six years later, when all of those, all, all of that stuff, had, had, had frankly proven to, to be to be ineffective. Um, you know, the, the South went to war 
for 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 the obvious reasons of, of you know, slavery and, and and a resistance to technology even in, in certain respects. But there were these other kinds of attitudes that, that get brought along with all that, which are not bad attitudes. They're not bad feelings. They're not bad bad ethics. This, this idea that that this was a um, kind of an agrarian pastoral place where people were kind and gentle, and everybody was neighborly and decent and humane, and men were gentlemen and women were ladies and while there's obviously some of that is a very real facade, there's a point at which that may have been true. And, and, and most historians would, would probably look and say, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's, there's a point at which that was, in fact, reality. And so when all of these young men, and not so young men, in fact, rush off to war, there's a feeling that those characteristics, those tendencies, those beliefs are going to help them win. That those things are stronger than what the other guys bring to the table, because the other guy is crude and he's vulgar and he lives in a city full of smokestacks and it's it's nasty and it's dirty. You know that the South is kind of the the Shire from Lord of the Rings, and that you cross over the Ohio River and all of a sudden it's like Gangs of New York. If you've seen that movie, where everything's you know, everything's dirty and violent and nasty. Um, that you know that that there's this kind of attitude in place there, and. And in a roundabout sort of way, there's some level of truth to that, some. Um, and obviously we know though, that, that that in a lot of respects is, is a facade. But I, I think the thing was, when those ideas failed, what we dealt with um, as a region was this sort, of con- this sort of regional trauma. Because it wasn't just a case of losing, it's that all of the belief you'd brought to the effort had, had failed you. Um, it wasn't just that you'd get, you know, yeah, you'd given it everything, but you had all these ideas that you brought with you to the table, and none of them worked. And and you could probably even argue um, that as as a region, 150 years later, just last year was the what sesquicentennial, I think, of of the start of the war. I mean, you could you could argue that that that's still being worked out in one way or another. I mean, there there are all kinds of there are all kinds of little towns all over the South that really had their heyday about 1840. And it, it's been downhill ever since, but nobody's told them. You know, they've not noticed. And, and you're sympathetic to that. You, you know, when you grow, especially for people who are you know, fifth, sixth, seventh generation residents of those communities, I mean, you're sympathetic to, to, to those institutions and what they, what they built. But then you also realize, you know, this, you know, when, the, when, the, when, the, you know, when the steamboat left you know, sometime around the defeat at Vicksburg, it's been downhill, and they've not noticed. And that's, there's, there's, there's a sense of loss there. And, and, and there's, a kind of a, there, there's definitely a kind of a clinging to something that doesn't quite exist anymore. And so um, this has kind of been an idea that's, that's kind of rummaged around in my head. And you know, Southerners, again, felt that they were bringing a lot of honor and sacrifice and dignity and, and even a sense of stoicism to, to their efforts. But ultimately, none of that worked. And to the extent that these, these were, were, were points of pride and emphasis, Essentially, those things were, um, they were gods that failed. And I, I've kind of rummaged that, that idea a little bit around it to say, you know, to see you know, how, does that, how does that play out in our own lives and, and, and that sort of thing. And so um, what, what really, in addition to the, to the passage from Paul, which I'll, I'll get to eventually um, today, not next week, was um, this book that I uh, picked up at a thrift store years ago, um, Confederates in the Attic by Tony Horwitz. I don't know if anyone's ever read it. Um, like it? Okay, I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on that. Um, um, Horowitz was a war reporter for years. Um, as, a, as a kid, had a Civil War fascination, um, particularly on the southern end, which he was, a, he, was, he was Jewish and lived in the north, but somehow he, cheering for the underdog, was a little bit more fixated on the south. But he, he moved back to America 
and the story starts out, he, he bought a farmhouse in Virginia, and in the middle of the night, here's, here's cannon fire, and discovers the world of Civil War reenactors, which he didn't know existed. And um, he, he goes on this, this kind of long journey for a, for a couple of years with, um, with a couple of Civil War reenactors, but then kind of explores um, the Civil War fixation in the South that he didn't really know still existed. He knew, obviously, people studied it, that it was an academic component, and that he knew there was a little bit of a cultural component, I mean, kind of in a Leonard Skinner sort of way, but he didn't realize, you know, he didn't realize the extent to which it was, it was alive and well. And one, it's, it's a tremendous book. Um, it's one of those, I remember reading about it when it came out years and years ago. I think I was still in high school, and then I happened to find it at a, at a used book sale, um, fulfilling my book buying um, urges. And um, it kind of sat on the shelf for a couple of years, and I just happened to read it a couple of weeks ago. And it's, it's a really good read. But he, he, he deals with this, where, where, you know, and he, he's very generous, I think, for the most part, um, very generous to, to be something of an outsider, and, which he admits. You know, I'm not, that I identified with this when I was eight in a, you know, you know, Disney movie sort of way, but in, in a real way, he said this was nothing I knew about. I'd, he'd been in you know Kosovo covering covering like serious you know, serious wars in our own time, but he comes back to the U.S. and he he kind of studies this at a ground level and and finds a lot of things that um, that they give him give him a lot of um, my words are failing me here, but he he sees this being played out. And obviously, he's not dealing with this from any kind of kind of Christian perspective. But he, he wrestles with how people are kind of cope with, with a very, very, very bad defeat. Um, so there were a couple of passages that kind of stuck out to me. One of the, one of the chapters, he goes to Memphis to, to meet with Shelby Foote. Um, he doesn't, no mention of any noted Civil War uh, professors. Uh, he doesn't go off and, 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 and talk to, to, to guys who, who teach at colleges or anything like that. Um, he had seen Shelby Foote in the Ken Burns documentaries. He'd read um, Shelby Foote's books on the Civil War. And so he goes to Memphis and makes this great trip. Um, he actually calls a chapter at the foot of the master, which is kind of cheesy. But, um, you know, and I think actually culturally, if you're going to study, I mean, that's kind of the guy you'd want to go talk to. Um, can't do that anymore, but at the time it would have been, been something good. Um, and so his interview with Foot, I think, is very revealing because uh, this is, again, this is somebody who not only studied the war, but grew, grew up in Greenville, Mississippi, um, was a friend of Walker Percy's as a child, um, Live next door to Will Alexander Percy, who has a has a hymn in her hymn book, um, and so there there is there is an, a little bit more of an intimate connection as opposed to somebody who um, not to not to put this down because this was this was me to a point, um, you know, it's not somebody who just identified with it academically, but somebody who really on the ground had had kind of a stake in, in this, and so Horowitz asked him a couple of questions, and, and so I'm going to I'm going to read just briefly a couple of paragraphs and then and then one more kind of select quote. Um, and, and I'll say this as an introduction. Horowitz goes to meet Foote, and he, he's kind of awestruck. I mean, he, he sees this guy who is almost a caricature, um, not not very um, not easy to peg down. And so all of these kind of canned questions he had ready for him kind of go out the window initially, um, pretty pretty quick. When I finally lobbed one, a question that is across the bed, why was the memory of the war so enduring? Foote smashed it straight back because it's the big one. It measures what we are, good and bad. If you look at American history as the lifespan of a man, the Civil War represents the great trauma of our adolescence. It's the sort of experience we never forget. Foot lit his pipe. I lobbed another one. Why did the South in particular cling to remembrance of war? It was fought in our own backyard, he immediately replied, or front yard, if you will, and you're not apt to forget something that happened on your own property. I was raised up in a rough and tumble society. I was in a lot of fistfights, maybe 50 in my life. 
The ones I remember with startling clarity are the ones I lost. This is the last question for this, for this passage. How did the experience of defeat define the post-war South? It gave us a sense of tragedy, which the rest of the nation lacks. In the movie Patton, the general talks about how we Americans have never lost a war. Well, Patton's own grandfather was in Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. He damn well lost a war. And there's another, another selection we'll get to you know, in a minute. But um, again, he kind of, he's kind of setting the stage saying, you know, when you live through something, I mean, you can completely remove the, 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 the metaphor I'm, I'm, I'm making here to, to, to deal with this in our own lives. When you live through something and it happens to you in your front yard or in your backyard and you lose, and perhaps even lose badly, uh, that's some, something you forget. And it's something that you, that you deal with and you carry with you. And, and it's, it's a part of you that you, again, you have to look at and say, well, I lost that. And especially then you realize, well, not just a basketball game either. You know, you lost something a little bit more significant. And so, um, and so that's, that's something we have to kind of wrestle with, I think, in, in light of the gospel. Any questions? One, one more reading from this, and then I'll actually move on to the Bible. You got anything? You read it? I loved it, yeah. Okay. I did too. I, I'm a sucker for any kind of creative nonfiction that has this kind of on-the-road kind of quality to it. Warren St. John's book on Alabama fandom actually fits in with this quite well. I may, I may have to go back and see if there's anything to say in that regard, because, again, there's a sense of loss. The, the Ole Miss chapter, I think, would be especially poignant. <laughs> No offense if you're a, if you're a graduate of the University of Mississippi. But, um, one quick passage, and um, there's a bad word, so forgive me. Talking about these ideas of values that, that fail. Foote's retroactive allegiance to the Confederacy surprised me. It was the honor-bound code of the Old South. One's people before one's principles, the straitjacket of scorn and stigma. And this is Shelby Foote talking. It's a bunch of shit, really but all Southerners subscribe to this code to some degree, at least male Southerners of my generation. In Foote's view, the same stubborn pride had sustained Southerners during the Civil War. It's what kept them going through Appomattox, that attitude of, I won't give up, I will not be insulted. And so, kind of wrapping this up for now, although by all means I welcome questions or comments, what he's getting at is an idea that, that keeps you on the field it keeps you playing, it keeps you competing, uh, it, it keeps you dealing with, with cold nights and hungry stomachs and summers full of mosquitoes and malaria. And you, get, and you, you, you stay at it and you give and give and give and give and that ultimately it, it still fails and it doesn't work. And so there is this trauma, and he used that word, the trauma of our adolescence, which is a great phrase. This trauma in terms of what now? Because we had placed extensive hope and a laundry list of honorable, noble attitudes, and they all failed. And we had physical institutions, governments and churches and armies that were also undergirded by that, and they didn't, they, they just didn't work. You know, now what? Um, and so, you know, it wasn't just, you know, again, it wasn't just a case of losing a war, because, you know, in that case, you'd say, well, you know, you know Alabama lost a basketball game yesterday to, to Ole Miss, incidentally. And that's what I get for, for saying bad things about Ole Miss. Uh, but it was, it was ultimately just a basketball game. Um, but losing, you know, losing a war, losing your home, losing your livelihood, losing friends and family and so forth is, 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 is pretty significant. And when the, the things that bring you to that point don't sustain you, 
And again, you're looking at kind of again, gods that failed when everything is, you know, as Margaret Mitchell said, when it's all gone with the wind at the end of the day, then what? And so I wanted to look at Paul and, uh, and see what he has to say. And I don't think that there are no... I think there are Bibles in the closet, so I'm sorry about that. But um, it's a couple of verses, so I'll just, I'll read it if that's okay, and we can kind of go from there. So chapter 3, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And this is the key passage. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I, may gain, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of, from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." I'm going to stop there with verse 11 and pick up with verse 12 later on. So, any thoughts on that? And I'll kind of sum up for a few minutes. I keep thinking back to technology, but sure. in terms of what Paul is saying, all of those things that marked him out as significant were earthly things and were things that were incredible in the minds of the people that he was in the culture with at that time. And just touching back to my thoughts on technology, what's so frustrating to me is the, <coughs> the dichotomy between what's lasting and what appears to not be lasting. Right. No, I think that's a good one. Because... The work I do is cutting-edge technology, but I have a hard time finding meaning in it because I don't think it will last. Right. And that's really frustrating. Do you mean in terms of the, the, the finished product or the yes. means of accomplishing the work? Yeah, Both? Wow. Mm-hmm. And how do you work when you don't feel like there's meaning. Right. Yeah, so. And I think a lot of jobs feel that way. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, and he, in fact, the, the interview with Foote, he talks, Shelby Foote makes a comment about how, in a way, he, he's, he's very nostalgic about what it would have been like to have been one of those people, whether it was a soldier in the war, just somebody who lived in the 1840s or 1850s, and he said, you know, their minds weren't cluttered. Mm-hmm. They knew what they were doing would probably last. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to an extent, that's not true. I mean, you know, a tornado comes through and the, the house you built doesn't last. But there, there's a point at which at which he was exactly right. And that's something I think we face in our own time and place a lot more than maybe was faced certainly you know, 200 years ago, maybe even as recently as 25 or 30 years ago. And it, I think emotionally and psychologically, that's a struggle. And it's not just something that, you know, it's not just some kind of bourgeois grief session. It's something that people actually have to deal with on the ground on a day-to-day basis. And it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, especially because cause anything we do is ultimately fleeting. I mean, our, I ran across this website the other day, and, and these people are comparing the quality of L.L. Bean Oxford button-up shirts from today as opposed to 30 years ago. And there's this sincere belief that the ones 30 years ago were better. And they may very well be. 
Um, and and there's, a, there's a real complaint because all the new ones are always this non-iron material and everybody wants the original 100% cotton. You know, you have to iron them yourself. You know, they don't have the, the, the kind of sheen to them. I'm sympathetic to all of that, but the, and, and I'm, I'm fully willing to believe that quality has declined. Fully willing to accept that. The, the only problem is it's all going to end up in a thrift store eventually. Or you spill salts on it. What's that? It won't last that long. Right. You know, right. I and mean, that's their point. It's like, you know, the, these new ones are so bad that you couldn't even buy a used one at the thrift store and it'd be any good. But the ones that my grandfather wore, if they got dumped off at the thrift store, I could still go back and buy them and they'd be fine. That's all probably true. But, you know, you have an accident at the Mexican restaurant, though, and, and it's all worthless anyway. You know, it could be an incredibly great, you know, American-made, by hand, 100% cotton, you know, perfect. You know, kid drops cheese stuff on it and it's ruined. You know, and so in any, in any case, we're completely, completely left with that. Well, let, me, let me sum up Paul, or just kind of, this is kind of where I'm going more on an actual scriptural basis. But I'm going I'm to hit back with, with Horowitz and maybe even pull out Warren's book. Um, we had coffee once, so I can call him by his first name. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people have probably had coffee with Warren St. John, so um, if he's listening to this, that makes me sound awful. But um, In any event, the, the thing with Paul's text here, when he talks about counting things as laws, usually, you hear that dealt with in a couple of ways. That Paul found, and I'm, I'm going to just speak of this in, in kind of a plain way, that Paul meets Jesus, and Paul has to do one of two things. He has to stop doing bad stuff, and he has to start doing good stuff. Which, sure, that's true. You know, on some level, you come to faith. The, you know, it's on some basic level, and it may be very, very subtle. It may be very big and huge. The sinful things, at some point, you know, we, we, can, we can trust in our own experience, but above all, we can trust in the scriptures that God is going to nudge you in some direction or another to quit doing bad things, whatever they may be, whether it's little, subtle, nitpicky things or it's big, giant, like addiction issues, that there's going to be some movement away from that. We're not really promised much in terms of success as far as that goes, but we can trust that that's going to happen. And that, generally speaking, if we've come to faith, that we may want to start coming to church or picking up a Bible or being more generous with our time or our money. And and all that's true. And I think, just in my experience, I've often heard that passage dealt with in that way. But I think that's almost selling it short. Because what Paul Paul does there is he's got a great resume. I mean, he's got just this fantastic, I mean, among, you know, the, the, even as a, he's a Roman citizen, but even, you know, among the Jewish community, I mean, Paul is just, you know, top of the line, a blue chip recruit, five stars in every way. And he has this road to Damascus moment. We don't know that he has an existential crisis, which is something that, you know, we like to talk about that around here. And, and it's a topic I enjoy. And that's kind of what we, we played around with here. We don't know that he had that. You know, we don't have this moment of, of you know, Paul kind of sitting in a dark corner of a bar, kind of rummaging over his thoughts and, you know, who am I? We don't, we don't have that before his Damascus moment. But we know on some level he has kind of a sinners in the hands of an angry God moment where he's, he's shown the ultimate, the ultimate dead end of, of where his trust lies. He's, 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 he, by grace, and, and that, it's kind of a, in a Flannery Connor way, it's kind of a violent grace. He's shown the, the dead end of all the, the, the trust in his, in his accomplishments. That his, his degrees, his, his, his schooling, his education, his family connections, his ties, his, his, ostensibly his wealth, everything that Paul had going for him, that ultimately that was a complete and total dead end. And there was really nothing about that that he could place lasting confidence in. 
And he, go, he'll, 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 he goes on to say, so I had all of those things. And I didn't, and, and, and God didn't come to me and like call a meeting and say, no, Paul, I'm, I, need you to, I need you to cut that out. Instead, that up against the illuminating glory of the gospel completely collapsed under its own weight. And, and he, he has to look backwards and say, you know, like he's telling, you know, again, like, like you're, you're, you're running through the, the, the homeowner's insurance after the tornado. And it's like, you know what? You can't save it. Just check loss on the little box and be done with it. And that's what Paul has to do. He, he has to go backwards and look at his life and say, this has accomplished absolutely nothing. And in light of who I am and who God is, and specifically the revelation of God in Christ to me. And so that's something to think about with Easter on the horizon. All of these things, I, it's, it's not worth anything. So let's just you know, put it in a box out on the side of the street and, and be done with it. And he has, he has to do that. And he goes on in chapter 3, and I'm going to leave it there and, and be, be kind of vague with it. He goes on to say, you know, then what? Um, and again, I would argue probably the rest of that chapter... Also, this often gets left out. And again, you get stuck with, with, frankly, what can be at times a superficial analysis of the text. And I say that very, very gingerly with limited you know, education in that and limited experience. But I think to look at that and, and see that Paul is, is speaking of something that, that we can identify with in our time and place when, when we do look at a job and feel like, this is going to be obsolete in five years. What am I doing? Or I can't trust that what I'm telling the people I'm in charge of, I, I can't trust that it's meaningful. We can... You know, we can go back and look at look at Paul and say, you know what, everything that he had done as well was also meaningless. Um, because the thing is, even though it was, you know, Paul's occupation was in some sense you know, religious and theological, it was a means. It was it was his way of life. It was his identity. Uh, it was there was a lifestyle involved there. It wasn't just you know, it, it was it was both that and it was in some sense as a paycheck. I mean, he had a lot going for it. And yeah, Will, please. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've got a lot of. It strikes me that um, Paul is unique here among the followers of Jesus. Maybe let me not put this in such that his loss is, is inferior to himself. He, externally, you know, anybody would look at his resume and say, it's pretty good, you know? And right. even you know, okay, even so that the, the Jews are downtrodden by the Roman Empire or whatever. Compared to everybody else, they got pretty good, right? These, right. these, these positions he has are still recognized; they still exist. They haven't been all, you know, they don't have to bow to the emperor all this. Sort of right. Stuff. He has status, um, and yet he counts all that as as, as, as loss. Right. The other guys, I mean, the early church. You think about, I mean, particularly, and I don't obviously, but if you subscribe to a kind of Christian religion view of Christianity, uh, the whole story is one of loss and dealing with. The fact that, oh, our team lost, right? They crucified right. Jesus, and all the stuff we were hoping for was taken away from us. You right. Know, sort of after, uh, Calvary. But Paul's, Paul was on the winning team right. at that time. Right. So, anyway, I'm just saying, no, I, don't, that, I don't know how to process all of that within, within this passage, you know what I mean? No, but, yeah. Because, it's, yeah, ostensibly he should have won. Yeah. They got rid of Jesus, right? Right. And that's no longer a threat to the, the hierarchy and the Pharisees and the people who are calling shots. Right. Well, he. They've got their cozy little position. Paul is at the top of the heap, and yet. Right. 
yeah, he sees so he's that. Not, he's not, you know, the, the Civil War guy. He's, he's, he's a Yankee, right? Right. But who finds him, yeah, who, who okay. sees that what he won wasn't what he... What he thought it right. was. Right. Yeah. Right. We, we, Lori and I are big fans. I'll wrap up with this this example. And it could be another video clip I could pull out of a hat. Lori and I are big fans of the TV show Friday Night Lights, which is... Um, it's off the air, but just a fantastic show. That, that may be one of the best network TV shows I've ever seen. And not really giving anything away, but in, at one point in the series, the, the high school is split into two schools. And there's some gentrification and some, some kind of racial politics kind of going on. And a really great player on the good school is found to be zoned for the lesser quality school. And the, 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 new, the new school is, is having really hard times with the football team. And... Um, the, the coach kind of has this little um, jersey burning ceremony where it's a chance to kind of start from scratch. Let's forget about this disaster of fall practice and our first game and everything. And at this point, the, the new kid has come along and he's got on his T-shirt from his old school. And he doesn't have a jersey to pick on throwaway, so he, rips, he, he takes off his shirt from the, other, from the good school, the school that had you know, been to the state finals like three or four years in a row. He takes it off and he throws it in the fire. And, you know, he realizes that the winning team that he was on, I mean, he was forced out of it. But I don't know. You could argue that Paul was forced out of it too, and you know, God Himself appears to you on a dirt road and says, "Stop." You know, it, what you know, it wasn't just like, "Well, yeah, I've been mulling this over, and I think I'm gonna," you know. No, I mean, there is a hard, fast, you know, proverbial gun to your head that says, "This is over with." And I think that that's yeah, because Paul had a stake in this, in a way that others didn't, which. To me, you know, vis-a-vis Hitchens, who in a certain sense was a real hero of mine, you know, that, that validates the faith even more. That here's somebody who had every reason to stay in his position. And Roman citizenship to boot. Yeah. And said, nope. Yeah, I'm going to count. Yeah. That, yeah, it's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, um, we'll do this again next week in the day school library if you're interested. Um, so I'll close this in prayer and we'll be, we'll be done. Father, we, we thank you that in the midst of great turmoil and great strife that, uh, that you are permanent, that the, uh, that the gospel is real and is ever-present, and we can place all of our hope and faith in that. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, y'all.